All right, good morning. It's good to see you this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ezra chapter 4. If you're new with us this morning, first of all, welcome. Glad you're here. It's been a while since you've been here. Welcome as well. Uh, you should know that we're in the middle of a series on the book of Ezra here at Fremont E. Free. We really believe that the Bible is the Word of God, and so we like to take books of the Bible and preach to them verse by verse because we want the Word of God to set the agenda. And this morning, that means that we've landed in Ezra chapter 4. Ezra is in the Old Testament. If you're looking for it, it's after First and Second Chronicles. Before you get to Nehemiah, Esther, or Job, you'll find the book of Ezra. So let's pray, and then we'll get to it. Uh, Father, as we open your word this morning, we just pray that you administer to us. Whatever lot in life we come in here with, whatever baggage we may have, whatever concerns we may have, whatever anxieties we may have, whatever joys we may be experiencing, we just bring them all to you this morning. And we pray that you'd speak to us loudly and clearly through your word. We pray that we'd be able to set aside all the things that might distract us this morning, that might be distracting us in our hearts, that might be distracting in this room. We just pray that we'd be able to set all those aside and that we'd be able to hear from you. God, we have an expectation that every time we open your word, you will speak. And so this morning, we're praying that you would do just that, that you would speak this morning loudly and clearly through your word. Help us. We're just jars of clay. You are the potter. We pray that you would do something great in us this morning. Please, Lord, speak to us through your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So one of the more memorable moments of my life occurred in a hotel conference room in the city of Yozgat, Turkey. Now, I know that sounds cliche because I'm sure everyone in the room has their own story from Yozgat. I mean, doesn't everyone claim to have a Yozgat story? Maybe not. But in my case, it's actually true. I'm 21 years old at the time and on a mission trip in the country of Turkey. And I've actually shared bits and pieces of this trip over the years. But to say the least, this mission trip was a wild one, and it stretched me in every way possible. For a month, I traveled around the country of Turkey with three other teammates, a guy from England, a girl from Ireland, a girl from Scotland, and our task was pretty simple. We were to visit 10 different cities in Turkey, and we were to strike up as many spiritual conversations as we could and hand out as many Bibles as we could and as much Bible literature as we could. Now, part, what, part of what made the trip crazy is that we didn't have any travel accommodations lined up for us ahead of time, so we had to figure out on the fly what bus to take, where we were going to stay, where we were going to eat. To complicate matters, we didn't have any smartphones. They didn't exist at the time. For those of you who are young, I know that's shocking. It's true. None of us could speak Turkish either. We also had a comically small budget. We were constantly on the verge of being out of money. And as if that wasn't crazy enough, we were traveling to some pretty remote locations in Turkey that were slightly dangerous, which led to some pretty interesting experiences. At one point, we found ourselves in a city with guys in trees with machine guns, presumably, I guess, to stop terroristic activity. At another point, we were pulled off the bus by the Turkish military and questioned by the side of the highway in a hot military building. But as wild as those experiences may have been, and they were pretty wild, I don't think any of them topped my experience in that Yozgat Hotel conference room. Now, to set the stage, our team had been staying for a day or two in Yozgat, and one evening I'd stepped out to get dinner with our teammate, or my teammate, Tim. The girls had stayed back at the ho hotel on that particular occasion, and when Tim and I returned to the hotel, we were asked by one of the hotel employees to go to a conference room on the second floor of the hotel, so we went. And when we got there, there were some government officials in the room, and on the table they had some literature and one of the Bibles that we'd handed out during our time in Yozgat. And it became quickly apparent that this was a time of interrogation. They wanted to know what we were up to. Now, the truth is, I don't remember much of that conversation. I remember being very nervous. I remember feeling intimidated, but I don't remember much of the specific questioning. But what I do remember vividly is the government officials telling us that we should not hand out any more Bibles. And they asked us to leave Yozgat immediately because they feared for our safety. 
Apparently there was a group of radical Muslims in Yozgat, and the government officials feared that if we did not leave soon, we would be in great danger. So essentially they told us to get on the next bus and get out of town. Now up until that point in my Christian life, I think I was well aware of the fact that not everyone loved Christians, and not everyone loved the message of the gospel. But in that moment in Yozgat, I began to understand the seriousness of the opposition that's out there. In that moment, it was pretty clear to me that there aren't just some people who are theoretically opposed to the message of Jesus. There are some people who are practically and even violently opposed to the spread of the message of the kingdom. And they will do whatever it takes to make sure that it does not spread. But listen, while that day may have been a light bulb moment for me where I finally understood the true significance of the opposition that exists against the gospel, the fact of the matter is that this opposition that exists against God and his ways existed long before that day. In fact, it's been around for a really long time. And that's something that we're reminded of in our passage today. In Ezra 4, as the people begin rebuilding the temple, almost immediately they face serious opposition. And that opposition will continue throughout the rest of the book of Ezra. It will continue also through the book of Nehemiah as well. And in that, we're reminded of a very simple truth this morning. For those who are trying to follow God and His ways, opposition and setback are often part of the story. But I would argue that if we know that to be true, that actually prepares us to be able to deal with the reality of opposition when it comes. And so this morning in Ezra chapter 4, my goal is that we would be reminded that opposition is a reality, but that we would also be encouraged that it's possible to face that opposition and still cling to our faith in God. Listen, the path of following God is not always a straight one. Sometimes it's windy and difficult and filled with opposition around every corner, but he's still worth following. I'd say let's turn our attention then to Ezra chapter 4. If you would, please stand out of reverence for the reading of God's word. We're actually going to read verses 1 to 5, and then I'm going to skip ahead to verse 24. For now, I'm going to skip verses 6 to 23 for reasons I think will become apparent here in just a few minutes. But Ezra chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, and then we're going to skip ahead to verse 24. All right, so 1 to 5, the word of God says this beginning in verse 1. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now we're skipping ahead to verse 24. Don't worry, we'll come back to 6 to 23 in a second. Verse 24 says this, Then the work on the house of God that's in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. It's the word of God. You may be seated. So up until this point in the book of Ezra, Things have been going pretty smoothly for those who are returning back from exile. In fact, maybe just to reset where we are in the book of Ezra, it's just helpful to say that is the context of the book. The people are coming back from exile to Judah, to Jerusalem. In 586, the Babylonians had captured the city of Jerusalem and Judah, and they'd taken most of the people off in exile to Babylon. In that same year, they'd also destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. When Cyrus and the Persians conquered the Babylonians in 539 B.C., Cyrus made a decree that the people could return to Judah and Jerusalem and they could begin rebuilding the temple. 
And again, up until this point in chapter 4, that's been going pretty smoothly. In chapter 1, the people are coming back. In chapter 2, we get a list of the people coming back. In chapter 3, which we looked at last week, the people built an altar to offer sacrifices to the Lord. They recommitted to following certain feasts and festivals, and they began the work of rebuilding the temple. Chapter 3 actually ended last week with the people shouting and joy as the foundations of the temple were being laid. Now, there was some weeping, too, because the temple was likely not as grand as that built by Solomon. But at the end of chapter 3, it seems that the overarching emotion is joy. Everything is headed in the right direction. But now in chapter 4, the joyful momentum of the first three chapters of Ezra comes to a dramatic thud. Opposition arises, and by the end of the chapter, the rebuilding of the temple has ceased. It's a pretty serious setback, actually. It's a clear reminder to us, those who are trying to follow God will face opposition and setback. And make no mistake about it, I think that is the clear message of chapter 4. That opposition and setback are part of the story for those who are trying to be faithful to follow God in His ways. And to make that point, the author of Ezra, which, by the way, we don't know who the author is. Traditionally, it's been ascribed to Ezra. That's probably the best guess, but we don't know for sure. Whoever the author is organizes chapter 4 in a really interesting way. Chapter 4 is not actually organized chronologically. Verses 1 to 5 fit perfectly with the overall storyline of Ezra. Those verses are natural continuation of chapter 3, and they lead naturally into what we'll read in chapter 5. But in between, in verses 6 to 23, the author of Ezra fast-forwards several decades, and he does so in order to talk about this theme of opposition. And we know that the author is fast-forwarding because of the two Persian kings that are mentioned in verses 6 and 7. Chronologically, verses 1 to 5 are taking place in the 530s B.C., during the reign of Cyrus. But verse 6 briefly mentions an anecdote related to Ahuserus, or as he's better known, Xerxes, who reigned from 486 to 465 BC, about 50 years later. And then verses 7 to 23 tells a much longer story that takes place during the reign of Artaxerxes, who reigned from 464 to 423 BC. Verse 24, follow with me here just for a second, verse 24 then follows up where verse 5 left off which is why earlier I read verses 1 to 5 and verse 24. So in terms of structure, it's best to think of the main storyline taking place in verses 1 to 5 and then verse 24. Verses 6 to 23 are like a parenthetical sidebar. So if you put a parenthesis around those verses in your mind or even in your Bible, it'll help you better understand the flow of this chapter. Because in those verses, the author of Ezra, who's writing at a much later time, is fast-forwarding as a means of showing that this opposition, which started in verses 1 to 5, continues long after the temple was finished. That even after the temple was finished, the people kept facing opposition. And they kept facing opposition as they were rebuilding the wall. And again, in all that, we're simply reminded of this one fact. Those who are trying to follow God will often face opposition and setback. When they were building the temple, they faced opposition. And as author of Ezra points out in verses 6 to 23, even after they finished that project and they began to rebuild the walls, they still faced opposition. And as we know, that opposition still continues even today. Even today, wherever the people of God are, and they're trying to accomplish the work of God, they will face opposition. And they will until the day that Jesus Christ returns. So that's the main thing I want you to take away this morning. For those who are trying to follow God, opposition and setback are often part of the story. And in light of that main theme, and in light of the way that people deal with that opposition and setback in this chapter, I think there are some key application points for us this morning. 
And that's how I want us to spend the rest of our time together this morning, thinking about how do we apply this chapter to our lives. More specifically, I think there are three application points that naturally flow from Ezra chapter 4. That's what we're going to do here the rest of our time together this morning. Three application points. Application point number one. If you're trying to follow God, do not be surprised by opposition and setback. That's a pretty natural one, given that the main theme is that if you're trying to follow God, you will face opposition and setback. But to apply that, we just say, if it comes, don't be surprised. Now, as we think about the type of opposition we might face as followers of Christ, and as we think about how we might prepare ourselves for that opposition so that we're not surprised when it comes, I think it's worth noting the type of opposition the people face in Ezra chapter 4. Quite simply, most of the opposition they face is political in nature. Look again at verses 4 to 5 to start with. And the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now, verse 5 here mentions the bribing of counselors. Now, we're not entirely for sure what that means, but most likely it means the enemies of God were bribing Persian government officials in order to get the officials to oppose the work of rebuilding the temple. In other words, the enemies of God at this point weren't necessarily using swords. Instead, they were using political means to try and frustrate the rebuilding of the temple. It seems the mention of those tactics is what prompts Ezra, or whoever the author is, to fast forward then and make this parenthetical statement of verses 6 to 23. Because in both verse 6 and verses 7 to 23, the author highlights future opposition that the, that the enemies would use that was similar in tactics. He's using this fast forward tactic to help us to see this continues. They keep using the same type of tactics. He's fast-forwarding. In other words, the author is fast-forwarding to show us this theme continues. Now, by the way, I don't think we should think it's strange that the author does this in verses 7 to 23. Even today in certain movies, you'll see movie writers do this, where they'll fast-forward in time to help you better understand what's happening presently. In the ancient world, it is not uncommon at all for ancient writers of history to do this same thing. All that to say, this parenthetical nature of verses 6 to 23 and the way in which the author fast-forwards should not strike us as odd. The author is clearly doing this on purpose, and the purpose is to highlight the theme that opposition is just part of what it means to follow God. And in particular, in verses 6 to 23, he's highlighting the fact that oftentimes the opposition we face will be political in nature. Look first at the example found in verse 6. All right, so verse 6 says this, And in the reign of Ahusserus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. Again, Ahusserus, or Xerxes as he's better known, reigned from 486 to 465 B.C. That's about 50 years after the events of verses 1 to 5. Now, we're given very little detail of what happened in verse 6. All we know is that at some point, the same enemies, or the same type of enemies who opposed the building of the temple, write a letter to Xerxes, and they accuse the people of God of doing something as a way of trying to generate political favor with Xerxes. Now, we don't know what accusation they made. We don't know if it worked. All we know is that they employed the political tactic of writing a letter of accusation to try to get the government on their side. We see the same thing happening in verses 7 to 23. But in verses 7 to 23, we see much more detail. Look first at verses 7 to 16. Verse 7 says this, In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam and Mithlodeth and Tabiel and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Rehum, the commander in Shimshai, and the scribe wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. 
Rahim, the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest are the associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Osnapper deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and the rest of the province beyond the river. This is a copy of the letter that they sent. To Artaxerxes the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They're rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They're finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now because we eat the salt of the palace and it's not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. You will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. That was why this city was laid waste. We make it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. So again, in verses 7 to 16, the author of Ezra is fast-forwarding. We know this because of mention of Artaxerxes, who reigned from 464 to 423 BC. So we're talking about 75 to 100 years later than verses 1 to 5. We also know that the author is fast-forwarding because in verses 7 to 16, the focus is now not on the rebuilding of the temple, but rather on the rebuilding of the walls, which would take place much later. In fact, Nehemiah wouldn't finish this project until 445 BC. Be that as it may, though, I think it's worth noting the tactics that the enemies of God take. Again, they write a political letter, but whereas in verse 6 we had no details, in verse 7 to 16 we're actually given quite a few details. And these details are instructive for us. And part of the reason they're instructive is because they help us understand the tactics the enemies of God use. They use inflammatory language. They use lies. They use exaggerations. They use fear tactic. In verse 12, they talk about the Jewish people rebuilding the city, and they describe the city as rebellious and wicked. That's clearly language that's meant to be inflammatory and and to incite fear. In verse 13, they tell the king that if the walls get rebuilt, the Jewish people will no longer pay taxes. That's probably not true at all, but they're trying to incite fear again, particularly economic fear. In verse verse 15, they tell the king to search the records where he will find that the Jewish people were taken to exile initially because of their sedition and treachery and attempts to overthrow kings. Again, that's not true. And then in verse 16, they warn the king that if he lets them rebuild, the king will lose their entire territory. This is absurd also. Right? So throughout verses 7 to 16, we see them using tactics of exaggeration, lies, fear tactics, inflammatory language to try to persuade the king to get on their side. And here's the thing. Even though they're clearly exaggerating, even though they're clearly not telling the truth, it works. Look at what happens in verses 17 to 23. Verse 17, the king sent an answer to Rahim, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria and the rest of the province beyond the river, greeting. And now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me. And I made a decree, and search has been made, and it's been found that this city from of old has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem, who ruled over the whole province beyond the river, to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease, and that this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this manner. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? Then when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rahum and Shimshai, the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to, to the Jews at Jerusalem, and by force and power made them cease. 
Now, it's unclear here how much research Artaxerxes did into the accusations made against the people of God. In fact, we probably suspect he didn't do a whole lot because at the end of the day, he buys into their lies. And the in conclusion is he tells the enemies of God to put a stop to the rebuilding of the wall. And in verse 23, that's what happens. This is where swords come into play. The people come with power and force, and they stop the people of God from rebuilding the wall. Now, eventually, as we know, if you've read the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah will finish this work, but for a period of time, it was stopped because of the enemies of God. And again, in all of this, we're simply reminded, opposition and setback are often part of the story for those who are trying to follow God. And so in light of that, and this is now where we're getting back to our application point, if we are going to try to follow God, even today in 2023, we should not be surprised by opposition and setback. Listen, I understand that the events of Ezra 4 took place a long, long time ago, roughly two and a half millenniums ago. Two and a half months ago seems like a long time. Two and a half millenniums ago is a really long time. But here's something you need to understand this morning. Just as we talked about back in Genesis 3, in terms of opposition, Satan is still using the same gun today, and he's still shooting the same bullets. Sometimes the opposition that we face is physical in nature, imprisonment, beatings, death. But oftentimes, as is the case in Ezra 4, it's political. In Ezra 4, the opposition faced by the people of God is primarily political in nature. The enemies of God persuaded political leaders to oppose the people of God and to oppose the work of God. The enemies of God in Ezra 4 didn't necessarily have to use their swords, at least not primarily. Instead, what they used for their weapon was the government. And listen, the same tactic is being carried out all over the world even today. For example, I read an article this week in which university students at Oxford in England infiltrated local churches, and I think that's the right word, because they secretly went in covertly, and they did research in order to rate churches based on their LGBTQ acceptance. Simply put, if a church preached what the Bible says regarding gender, regarding sexuality, they were given a rating of one and described as a red light church. Don't go there. On the other hand, if a church embraced and celebrated and highlighted their acceptance of homosexuality and transgenderism, they were given a rating of five and a rating of a green light. You should go there. After this report was published, some politicians in England began to call on this project to be replicated across the country of England. And you can bet if that project is carried out, it will be absolutely used against the churches that actually preach what the Bible says. Political power will rain down. And if you don't think that could happen in the United States, then you haven't been paying attention. And quite frankly, you've missed the obvious truth that is everywhere in Scripture. If you're going to follow God, you will face opposition. Jesus himself said this would be the case. In John 15, 20, Jesus plainly tells his followers, and I quote here, this is Jesus, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. I think sometimes we see the direction our country's headed in, we see the direction the world's headed in, and it makes us discouraged and surprised. We just can't believe that it's happening. But listen, while I get the discouragement part, because it is discouraging to see the ways of God opposed, we should not be surprised. In 2 Timothy 3.12, which Jim read earlier, Paul tells us plainly, he says, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not might be, they will be. So brothers and sisters, my encouragement for you this morning, and I don't know if this is an encouragement so much as it is just a reality check, is that we should not be surprised when we face opposition and setback. On the contrary, we need to prepare ourselves to face opposition. We should not expect that everyone will like us. 
We should not expect that everyone will be okay if we simply teach what the Bible says. We should not expect that we will be celebrated and patted on the back if we remain faithful to God's word. If they persecuted Jesus, they will persecute us too. Opposition is a reality for anyone who's serious about following God. But knowing that to be true is an important part of the battle. If you go into a football game thinking you're playing two-hand touch when everyone else is playing tackle, you're in for a rude awakening. Right, you have to prepare yourself accordingly. This might be hard. So church, do not be discouraged when you face opposition. Do not be surprised as if something strange is happening. But instead, know this is just part of what it means to follow God. And prepare yourself accordingly now so that when it comes, you'll be ready. Which brings us to application point number two. Do not compromise your convictions to appease the crowds or to avoid difficulty. But instead, stand your ground. Let me say that again. Don't compromise your convictions to appease the crowds or to avoid difficulty, but instead stand your ground. Something really, ha- something really important happens in verses 1 to 3. Let's go back there again. Ezra chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, let us build with you. For we worship your God as you do, and we've been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esau Haddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. So here's my question for you this morning. Why wouldn't Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the leaders simply take up this group of people on their offer to help rebuild the temple? I mean, what's so wrong with this offer? In the end, wouldn't it have saved them a lot of trouble? Wouldn't they have been able to finish the temple much quicker if they just would have gone along to get along? But to understand what's happening here and to understand why what Zerubbabel and Jeshua did was the correct action, I think a little bit of background information is important. In 2 Kings chapter 17, we learn of a group of people from foreign nations being forced to repopulate the land of Israel after the people of Israel were taken off into exile. These foreign people did not know the one true God, so some priests were brought in to teach them about God. And they listened to a degree, but they also worshipped other gods. In other words, they practiced syncretism, which is the idea that you combine one or two or three more religions into one. They're trying to blend this all together. The syncretism is described perfectly in 2 Kings 17, which is on the screen here. 2 Kings 17, 33 and 34 says this, So they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods, after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. To this day they do according to the former manner. They do not fear the Lord, and they do not follow the statutes or the rules or the law or the commandment that the Lord commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel. So the people in 2 Kings 17, they're claiming to follow God, but they're also claiming to follow other gods at the same time. They're practicing syncretism. And in saying that, let's be absolutely clear. What's being described in 2 Kings 17 is not okay. You cannot worship God, or say you worship God, but also worship other gods at the same time. That doesn't work according to the Bible. As Deuteronomy 6 puts it, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And we are to love him with all of our heart, soul, and strength. He will not share his glory with another. And therein lies the problem for the enemies of Ezra chapter 4. Given the way they're described in verse 2, we're almost certainly talking about the same group of people that were described in that passage in 2 Kings 17. In other words, these enemies of God may have claimed to worship the same God, which they do here in Ezra 4. 
But they weren't actually worshiping God because they were trying to have this buffet approach to religion. We'll just take bits and pieces of everything that we like here. In other words, they weren't worshiping the same God. They were synchristic. God was just one God amongst many. And it would seem then that this is the reason why Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the other leaders flatly reject their offer to help rebuild the temple. And they do flatly reject it, don't they? In verse 3, again, I'm quoting here, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel. Listen, in every age, there's a temptation to go along in order to get along. There's a temptation to compromise our convictions in order to make life easier and in order to appease the crowds. And certainly that temptation was there for the people of God in Ezra chapter 4. It would have been easier for them just to go along to get along, to go along with the crowds to make life easier. And listen, you can see that the same thing's happening in our culture today. When it comes to the cultural flashpoint issues like divorce, marriage, sexuality, gender, abortion, even issues like materialism and greed, how many churches have compromised in order to make life easier? How many churches have compromised in order to appease the crowds? Even just this week, I read an article about a prominent pastor, one of the most famous pastors in the United States, who has clearly bent his knee to the cultural mob in certain issues. He's trying to win the favor of the crowds, and he's being celebrated for it, even though he's clearly disregarding the teaching of the Bible. But listen, we need to be aware that this is a temptation, not just for celebrity pastors, not just for people in Ezra 4. This is a temptation for every person in this room. Tony and I both have friends from college that have drifted theologically to the point that I would say they're now outside the bounds of historical Christianity. But here's the thing. These friends of ours weren't always drifting in that direction. There was a period of time where they were involved in Bible studies, where they were seemingly committed to following Christ. But over time, it would seem that they just decided it was just easier to go along to get along. They compromised their convictions, or at least what they said were their convictions, in order to make life easier and appease the crowds. But here's the problem with that approach. At the end of the day, we don't answer to the crowds. We answer to the Creator. On the day of judgment, there will not be a social media poll to determine if you are faithful. There will not be a poll like, what do you guys think? Crowd, were they faithful? No, there will be only one voice that matters on that day, and it will be His. The question is not, what do the crowds say? The question is not, what is culturally popular? The question is not, what makes life easier? The question is, what does God think and what does his word say? And will we have the courage to do what his word actually says? Will we have the courage to stand by our convictions? If you look at almost any poll, it's amazing how much the beliefs of professing Christians have shifted in the last 10 years on a variety of different issues. And not surprisingly, they've all shifted to reflect cultural norms. But here's a question for you. If the word of God is unchanging, how is that possible? Church, we need to have a backbone. Is it possible that someday we might lose our tax-exempt status because we preach what the Bible says? Absolutely. Is it possible that it might be harder for us to find jobs one day in the corporate world because we belong to a Bible-believing church that actually teaches what the Bible says? I think it is. Is it possible that Fremont E. Free one day may become the punching bag in this town simply because we won't back down from what God's Word teaches? I think that's possible too. But here's the thing. If the choice is faithfulness to God who made us or appeasing the crowds, is there really any choice in the end? We answer to Him and Him alone. Now listen, the danger of theological drift is real. 
The danger of going along to get along is real. And it's affecting the American church in profound and practical ways. Just to give one example, one of the things that we talked about recently as elders is that one of our greatest challenges in counseling situations is that people we're often trying to help are going to quote-unquote Christian counselors who are giving the person thoroughly unbiblical advice. Now hear me, there are some really good Christian, good Christian counselors out there, and I'm super thankful for that. I'm not railing against Christian counseling here. In fact, I'm a huge fan of counseling that's actually Christian. But from my perspective, it seems that there are many so-called Christian counselors who are more informed by the culture than they are what the Bible says. And that's an issue. Because again, at the end of the day, we answer to one voice. And it's not the voice of the crowds or the modern popular way of thinking. It's what the Word of God says. Will we do what he asks us to do? In the case of Ezra 4, it was not politically expedient for Zerubbabel and Jeshua to reject the offer of rebuilding the temple. It didn't win them any friends, and it didn't make their life easier. But for Zerubbabel and Jeshua, it didn't matter, because they knew who they would answer to. So church, my encouragement to you, in fact, my pleading with you this morning is don't compromise your convictions to appease the crowds or to avoid difficulty, but instead stand your ground. Now, This should be obvious, but when we stand our ground, we should be people who are filled with the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We should not be angry stand our grounders, right? We should be kind and patient. But even if we're kind and patient, it won't always work out well for us. We need to know that ahead of time. It might be costly for us to stand our ground. But even if it's costly, it's still the right thing to do. That brings us to our third application point here. Don't measure the rightness of an action by its result, but instead be obedient to God and trust him with the results. Again, let me say that again. Don't measure the rightness of an action by its result, but instead be obedient to God and trust him with the results. Look again at how the passage ends. Verse 24. Then the work on the house of God that's in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So to recap here, Zerubbabel and his crew, they do what's right. They stick to their convictions. They are not thwarted by the enemies of God, at least in terms of what they do. They're they're willing to stand by what they believe. And what happens as a result? Work on the temple is halted. The good guys don't win. And given what we read and what we can piece together, it was probably halted for a period of about 10 to 15 years. A decade to a decade and a half. That's a really long time. And in light of that result, it probably would have been easy for Zerubbabel and the other leaders to second-guess their decision. Ah, Maybe we should have just taken them up on their offer to rebuild. Maybe we should have just gone along with what they wanted us to do. But clearly, given the way this story is reported, Zerubbabel and the other leaders were absolutely right to do what they did. And just because the result wasn't great doesn't change that reality. Earlier this year, one of our kids got in kind of a sticky situation. This particular kid was with another group of kids that were making some morally questionable decisions. And our kids stood up for what was biblically right, and the process got ridiculed for it. It was not a great result. But we're still proud of our kid for doing the right thing, because as we talked about afterwards, we don't measure the rightness of an action by its result. We do the right thing, and then we trust God with the result. Hear this. Scripture is filled with many examples of people who do the right thing, and they get a terrible result. Stephen, for example, he boldly preaches the truth, stoned to death. Joseph flees from the advances of Potiphar's wife. He does the right thing, thrown in jail. The Apostle Paul spreads the gospel to places where it's never been. And everywhere he goes, 
trouble follows. Most notably, Jesus did everything right. And when I say he did everything right, I literally mean he did everything right. He never sinned, and yet crucified. Listen, there will be times where you do the right thing and it doesn't go well. Maybe you try to intervene and help a marriage and the person you try to help gets mad at you. Maybe you speak the truth to a friend and you lose a friend. Maybe you stick up for your beliefs at work and you don't get promoted at work. Maybe you even lose your job. But listen, that doesn't mean you did the wrong thing. Even though the result at the end of chapter 4 is not great. Again, the good guys are losing here at the end of chapter 4. We'd still have to say Zerubbabel and the other leaders, they did the right thing, even if it was costly. Don't judge the rightness of an action by its result. Just obey God and trust him with the result. Now, there is one other thing we need to keep in mind, though. Even though the result may not be great now when we obey God, eventually it will be. Think about this. In Hebrews 11, many of the heroes of the faith, Hebrews 11, this famous chapter where all these heroes of the faith are presented, many of the heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11 did not get a great result on this earth. As Hebrews 11 tells us, some of them were stoned, some of them were sawn in two, some of them were killed by the sword. But as Hebrews 11 also reminds us, but they knew a greater reward was still to come. And church, we know the great reward is still to come too. And we know that reward is secure because of what Jesus did. Because Jesus died on the cross for our sins, because he rose three days later, because he ascended in heaven, and because he's going to come back again and make things right, we can be fully confident that the end result of obeying God will always be good. When we do what's right, the earthly results may not always be great. But in the end, it's always better to do what's right because when Jesus comes, he will make all things square. So church, I know this is kind of a heavy message, but I think it's one we need to hear. Opposition and setback are part of walking with God. Don't be surprised when they come. Don't compromise your convictions to make life easier now and to appease the crowds. Instead, do what's right and trust God with the results. And do so knowing that at the end of the day, he will make things right. And we know this to be true because Jesus died, but he rose from the dead. And he will come again. And when he comes, he will make all things new. He will make all things right. Let's pray. God, we know that this is, this is somewhat of a sobering passage. Because in, he, in Ezra chapter 4, we are reminded that the people of God often face opposition. And so we're just asking for your help now. Give us the courage of conviction to stand our ground, to do so with the fruit of the Spirit oozing out of us, but to do so knowing it may be costly. But help us to do this, Lord, knowing that it's still worth it because honoring you is always the right decision. Because in the end, you will make all things right. And it's those who trusted in you who will be vindicated on the last day. So help us to be those people who cling to our faith and trust in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So on the week's opposite, the Lord's Supper here at Fremont.